Good morning, church family. For it's wonderful to see all of you here today. As we will once again be in Mark chapter 15 this morning, looking specifically today at verses 33 through 41, or at the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which comes to us this morning following Jesus Christ being handed over by the Sanhedrin to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, being questioned then by this Roman governor Pontius Pilate, and eventually then, after being scourged or flogged, which again was the practice where Jesus Christ would have been stripped of his clothes, tied to a post, and then struck over and over and over again with a lead-tipped whip, For this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, then delivered Jesus Christ, verse 15, over to be crucified. To which Pilate's soldiers then began to mock Jesus Christ by putting a purple cloak on his back, a crown of thorns on his head, and by saluting him as the king of the Jews, striking him on the head with a reed, spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. To which after Pilate's soldiers had mocked Jesus Christ, for they then stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. However, due to all the beatings that Jesus Christ had endured, for he, Jesus Christ, then was not able to carry this approximately 100-pound crossbeam, the crossbeam on which he would eventually be crucified on, all the way to Golgotha, or all the way to Calvary, the place where Jesus Christ would ultimately be crucified. Therefore the soldiers, as we see in verse 21, for they then compelled a passerby, a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, to carry Jesus' cross. And that upon reaching Golgotha, or that upon reaching Calvary for the soldiers then, at the third hour, or at 9 a.m. in the morning, for they then crucified Jesus Christ by nailing him to a cross with five to seven inch nails, and then raising that cross up and dropping it down into a post hole, and then just leaving Jesus Christ there to hang until he eventually died. However, while Jesus Christ hung there on that cross at Calvary, for those who passed by him, church, for they mocked him. And the chief priest and the scribes, for they mocked him. And even the two robbers who hung on the crosses right next to him, for even they ridiculed and reviled and berated and hurled insults at him as well. Which is exactly where we left off last week in the text and which is exactly where we are going to pick up in the text today. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on human flesh and willingly died for sinners. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on human flesh, and willingly died for sinners. And thus at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. And if you are joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, 
And please feel free to grab and even keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you, as our gift to you this morning. And to turn that brand new Bible of yours to page 853, and to join us as we as a church family hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, we will be in Mark chapter 15 this morning, church, and we will be looking specifically at verses 33 through 41, where John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I will repeat the words of my brother Alex, Lord, thank you that we can join today in the house of the Lord with the people of the Lord, singing songs to our Lord, hearing the word of God preached this morning, praying in mind and in spirit, giving our offerings and our gifts that have been given to us back to you, Father. And because of faith in Jesus Christ, because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, who has paid the price for our sins, our sins that separated us from God, we now, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, can freely enter into the presence of you, God. Father, how how great that privilege is that we now can enter into your presence, God, as we worship you this morning and as we pray. Father, I pray that you open the eyes and the ears of these dear individuals here today. Lord, let their hearts be gripped by this text this morning, For we have heard of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ ever since we were little in Sunday school. But Father, I pray that today be the day that new insight arises from this text, that your spirit opens the eyes of these dear ones and that they are forever changed because of it. 
Father, I pray that you help my lisping and my stammering tongue this morning. Help me, Father, to rely completely on your grace, to be humble but yet to be confident because these are not my words, but we are sharing the infallible word of God this morning. Father, convict these dear ones, build them up in the faith, and we pray that our entire service this morning is an offering that glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this, point number one. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Verses 33 through 36. Which reads, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So remember, church, as we saw back in verse 25, that it was at the third hour, or at 9 a.m., when Jesus Christ was initially nailed to the cross at Calvary. And yet, as we see here in verse 33, that it's now the sixth hour, or that it's now 12 p.m. in the text, or some three hours after Jesus Christ was initially nailed to that cross, and that it was at this time, at noon, or at 12 p.m. in the afternoon, That verse 33, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour or until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And this was not just some natural solar eclipse of the sun that just so happened to be taking place here at this time, church. And I say that because the Passover feast, for it took place when the moon was full, not when the moon was new. And solar eclipses, for they take place when the moon is new and not when the moon is full like it was during this Passover feast. And thus this darkness then, for it seems to be a cosmic sign from God himself, a sign that represented here, church, or symbolized here, church, that of God's judgment. And I say that because as we see throughout the Old Testament, in places like Joel 2.10, Amos 8, 9, and even in places like Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, which reads, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter, and mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of bitterness and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. That darkness, church, is often related to or connected with, again in the Old Testament, to God's judgment. And thus this darkness then, as numerous commentators point out, for it seems to be a sign here of our God's judgment against human sin, which was placed on or poured out on the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. And yet at the ninth hour, 
or at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, for Jesus Christ then, after hanging on this cross at Calvary for some six hours at this point, for he then, verse 34, cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, being the Aramaic of the beginning of Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, which obviously reads, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nevertheless, as Daniel Aiken goes on to explain, for this cry from Jesus Christ here, for it was not one of physical pain or psychological confusion, nor even dread of death, but instead this was the cry of the Son of God who was now experiencing something that he had never known in all of eternity, separation from and forsakenness by God. And thus Jesus' cry in the darkness here that covered the land for they declared the same truth, that there was real abandonment from the Father. Since, as Isaiah 53, 6 teaches us, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or as the CSB puts it, the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And this was the price that Jesus Christ paid as a ransom for many. And furthermore, why my God, my God, instead of my Father, my Father... Because in this one moment, in all of time, and in all of eternity, Jesus Christ viewed himself and knew himself not as the Father's Son, but instead as the sinner's sacrifice. To which, as we see then in verse 35, that some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Now being that Elijah did not die, but instead went up into heaven by a whirlwind, as we see in 2 Kings chapter 2. For many Jews then believed during the first century that Elijah then would actually come in times of trouble in order to deliver the righteous. And thus in light of that, for some of the bystanders here, seemingly then misunderstand what Jesus Christ was saying when he said in verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, thinking that he was calling for Elijah here, in essence, to help him and to deliver him. And thus, as we see then in verse 36, someone then ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to Jesus to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Nevertheless, I want to pause here for a second, church, and consider a little more deeply at this time the darkness that covered the whole land back in verse 33, and to do so by summarizing this story that I read from the late Reverend John Henry Byrne, who shared that a pious astronomer, in describing an eclipse that he once witnessed in Norway, for he wrote this, that as I watched the instantaneous extinction of light and I saw the glorious scene on which I had been gazing upon turn into darkness, for all the horizon at that time seemed to speak of terror and death and judgment. And overhead set not the clear flood of light that even a starry night sends down, but instead there hung over me dark and heavy blackness, which seemed as if it was going to crush me into the earth. 
And as I beheld it, for I thought to myself, for how miserable is the soul to whom Jesus Christ is eclipsed from. And yet that thought then, for it was answered for me by the voice of a fierce and powerful seabird which had been swooping around us, when this bird then poured out a scream of despairing agony when it was surprised by the darkness all around him. And oh, what then will be the fearful surprise one day to all the lost souls when they find themselves in that dark world and when hope withering flees from them and when mercy ultimately says farewell to them. Church, for our sake, God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And Jesus Christ, he entered once for all into the holy places, but not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but instead by the means of his own blood, and in doing so secured for us eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.12. For Jesus Christ, he bore our sins in his body on a tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, Christian, we have been peeled. 1 Peter 2.24 In essence, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for he drank the cup, suffered the punishment, endured the judgment, and bore the wrath of our most holy God that we as sinners deserve for our very sins on that cross at Calvary, all also that through him, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, we then could be saved from our sins and receive the gift of eternal life in his most holy name. And yet, for those who reject this Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world, for they will not also then, church, become the righteousness of God, nor will they also then, church, receive the gift of eternal life. Nor will they also then, church, be saved from their sins, cleansed of their sins, redeemed from their sins, and by the wounds of Jesus Christ be healed of their sins. But instead, those who reject, those who deny, and for those who quite simply do not rely on Jesus Christ to save them from their sins, for they themselves then, church, will have to face the judgment, the punishment, and the wrath of their most holy God that they ultimately deserve for their sins by being condemned to hell and cast into eternal darkness forever and ever and ever. Which brings us to point number two. Even in death, Jesus Christ still truly is the Son of God. Even in death, Jesus Christ still truly is the Son of God. Verses 37 through 41. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him 
to Jerusalem. So Jesus Christ, after being nailed to a cross at 9 a.m. in the morning, and then after being mocked by those who passed by him, and by the chief priests and the scribes, and even by the criminals who hung on the crosses right next to him, and then after being forsaken by God and given some sour wine to drink for Jesus Christ, after spending approximately six hours hanging on that cross of Calvary, for he then, verse 37, uttered a loud cry, which likely were the words from John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. And he then, verse 37, breathed his last. And that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the God-man himself, for he here is now dead. And he has given up his life once and for all time as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of many, so that sinners like you and like me, Christian, could be redeemed, forgiven, and saved from their very sins. To which, as we see then in verse 38, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, seemingly speaking here about the inner curtain of the temple or the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, a curtain which, as one source notes, could have been as big as 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and as thick as a man's palm, and which was torn in two here, church, by our God, which signified, as one commentator put it, that Jesus is death then, as the perfect sacrifice for sin marked the end of the Old Testament sacrificial system and all the trappings that went with it, and that for nearly 1,500 years, only the high priest had been allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, and only for a brief amount of time, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And thus this curtain then, that blocked the Holy of Holies, For it served then as a continual reminder of the sinner's separation from God's holy presence and no animal sacrifice ever tore that curtain open. And yet on that Friday afternoon, God demonstrated that the work of the atonement symbolized by the animal deaths, that it had been finished by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. And that his death immediately then rendered the temple sacrificial system and all its rituals and sacrifices obsolete. And that the barrier then to God had been permanently removed. And that access to God's presence was now open through the completed work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only that, but as we also see then in verse 39... That when the centurion who stood facing Jesus Christ saw that in this way he breathed his last, for he said, truly this man was the Son of God. And that the centurion who was seemingly the Roman officer who was in charge of or in command of the soldiers who crucified the two criminals and Jesus Christ at Calvary, and who had likely seen many, many, many other crucifixions in his own right as well. And yet, when he saw the way how Jesus Christ breathed his last, 
seemingly referring here to the purity and to the dignity in which Jesus Christ died with. For this Roman centurion said, for truly this man was the Son of God. And this declaration or this confession from this Gentile Roman centurion here that this Jesus, verse 39, truly was the Son of God, for it comes not because Jesus Christ came to power politically, nor because Jesus Christ conquered and destroyed foreign enemies militarily, nor because Jesus Christ led the people of Israel nationally, but instead it comes, as numerous commentators point out, from the way that Jesus Christ died, church, ultimately for the sins of many. To which as we read then in verses 40 and 41 that there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And that on the day of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that some women were also there, watching from a distance, and that among them were Mary Magdalene, who Jesus Christ casted seven demons out of, as we see in Luke chapter 8, Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome, who was the mother of the apostles, James and John, and the wife of Zebedee. And yet, although these brave and courageous women were looking on here from a distance at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As for Jesus' 11 remaining apostles, all of which were males, mind you, church, for outside of the apostle John, as John chapter 19 notes, for they were nowhere to be found. And thus in light of that, J.C. Ryle, for he wrote this, for this then just shows what the grace of God can do as the faith of a woman sometimes stands upright when the faith of a man fails and gives way. And Ryle then, he eventually concludes his expository thoughts on this passage with this. For women have an important place in the church of Jesus Christ, one that ought to be assigned to them and one that they ought to fill, since there is a great work that women can do for God's glory. And happy is the congregation in which women know this, and act upon it. Now, although we as a church body and we as a denomination affirm, as our BFC principles of order note, that the positions of elder and pastor and minister are to be reserved only for that of men, for that does not mean, church, that women then somehow have not been gifted by our God in order to be used by our God so that they then can bring glory to our most holy God as well. And thus I just want to take a moment to lovingly encourage 
all of our dear and wonderful and supremely gifted women here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church to use your gifts, sister Christian, that your God has ultimately given to you to build up, to care for, and to love this church body and to bring glory to your God's most holy name. Maybe by leading a women's Bible study or by serving on the music team. Or maybe by leading a women's small group or by discipling a brand new mother. Or maybe by teaching in children's church or by serving in the nursery. Or maybe even by helping out on the soundboard, helping out on PowerPoint, serving on the hospitality team, serving on the welcoming team, serving on our missions committee, or by writing letters to congregants, encouraging congregants, making meals for congregants, calling our congregants, or by praying and praying and praying faithfully for each and every one of our dear congregants because the fact of the matter is without our gifted and talented and humble and servant-minded women here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church for we would be in so much trouble. And thus because of that again, for just let me lovingly encourage all of our dear sisters in Christ here today to use the gifts that your God has given to you to love, to serve, and to build up this dear church body and to bring glory, sister Christian, to your God's most holy name. Thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, for I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who is here first and to share with you at this time that although this Jesus Christ, this Son of God, did indeed die on that cross at Calvary and did indeed give himself up as a ransom for many for the story of Jesus Christ, for it did not end there. And I say that because Jesus Christ, for he came into this world, non-Christian, to save sinners from their sins, which is exactly what Jesus Christ accomplished. And he accomplished that by initially coming into this world as truly God and as truly man and by living the life that we as sinners could never, ever live. And that the life that Jesus Christ lived here on earth was a life that was holy and just and righteous and good, free from any kind of iniquity or wickedness, wrongdoings, or sin. Meaning that he, Jesus Christ, then fulfilled the law of God perfectly and completely and without any kind of offense, and he did it, non-Christian, all for the very children of God. However, that was not all that Jesus Christ accomplished, non-Christian, while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because, being that the wage of our sin or the cost of our sin is that of death, for he, Jesus Christ, then also willingly gave up his own life, by being crucified and nailed to, killed and crushed on an old rugged cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute, even though he himself never sinned. And in doing so, satisfied the justice of our most holy God and appeased then, non-Christian, the wrath of our holy God all toward his sinful children as well. And thus, because of that, three days later then, this sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, 
for he didn't stay dead or buried in some grave, but instead, three days later, for he, Jesus Christ, then, he rose from the dead, and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all, and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you then in his perfect life, in his righteousness and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Jesus Christ and today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, for as we close this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, I'd like to do so in light of verse 38, again, which reads, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And concerning the curtain of the temple being torn in two, to summarize Greg Lanier, for he shared this, that in the Lord of the Rings, the doors of Doran barred entrance into Moriah under the misty mountains. And similarly, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a mysterious wardrobe granted or prevented entrance into Narnia. And a key feature in both of these stories were the barriers between the characters and where they needed to be. And in the story of Israel, the most vivid instance of this theme was the woven curtain hanging at the heart of their house of worship, separating the holy place from the most holy place or from the holy of holies. Whereas although priests were allowed to minister in the holy place regularly, for it was only once a year when they could pass through the inner curtain and into the immediate presence of God. For this curtain then, in effect, perpetually guarded the entrance to the holiest holy place. And thus the tearing of this curtain reveals that all believers then now have fresh, and unparalleled access to God. And thus, just let that truth sink in for a second, church, and penetrate your heart and your mind this morning, church, that through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who atoned for your sins, your sins that ultimately separated you from God, that through faith in Jesus Christ, that you now, Christian, can freely go to your God and confidently approach your God whenever you wish, since you now have access to him. And yet how often, brother Christian, sister Christian, and I am speaking to myself here as well, do we view approaching our God or going to our God as some kind of chore? or as some kind of burden, or as some kind of drudgery that we as Christians just have to do. And thus, in light of that, for a scholar, Daniel Durrani explained it, for if human beings do such a great deal in order to gain access to people with power, and with wealth, and with knowledge, 
For shouldn't believers then weigh their access to God as the highest of privileges and treasure it and exercise it by entering into our God's presence in worship and in prayer? Therefore, since you're God, brother Christian, sister Christian, the God who created the heavens and the earth and who made all things sustains all things, decrees all things, and who in love predestined you for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians chapter 1, and who in the here and now will be faithful to hear you, to listen to you, give grace to you, show mercy to you, forgive you, comfort you, strengthen you, and to answer your prayers for you. For why then, Christian, would you ever, ever, ever stop ambitiously and enthusiastically and zealously praying to the God of the universe and freely entering into his presence who you now have unparalleled access to. And thus lovingly, let me encourage you all here this morning to not disregard this privilege or to begin to neglect this privilege or begin to become apathetic or indifferent or callous toward this privilege, but to instead be quick to remind yourself each and every day of this privilege that you now have through faith in Jesus Christ. And to then, as Durrani previously noted, to exercise this privilege by entering into the presence of your most holy God via prayer, where you can praise him, Christian, adore him, Christian, make your requests before him, Christian, give thanks to him, confess your sins to him, and with confidence draw near to his throne of grace so that you can receive mercy and grace in your times of need, Christian, since through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins have been atoned for, and you can now freely and confidently approach the presence of your God whenever you wish. Thus, it's my prayer that we as a church body, continually and without ceasing, draw near to the presence of our God via the act of prayer, since through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on that cross at Calvary, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For we now as the children of God, as those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, for we now have access to the God of the universe. And thus it is my prayer then, Father, that we as the children of God never become bored with that reality or begin to neglect that reality or forsake that reality, but that we instead cherish and adore and love that reality that we as the children of God can now faithfully approach our God each and every day by praying to him at all times in the spirit and to do so without ceasing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, rattle our hearts this morning. Rattle our minds this morning to let us know the privilege that we now have that we can come into your presence through faith in Jesus Christ. And we can cry out to you, draw near to you, worship you, adore you, make our request be heard before you. For the veil has been torn. 
And for those by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we now have access to come into the presence of the God of the universe. For the righteousness of Jesus Christ has clothed us, and our sin no longer separates us. Father, let us understand and realize the privilege that we have, and let it drive us and motivate us then to seek your presence like never before. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and his atoning, propitiating, wrath-appeasing sacrifice that he made on that cross at Calvary to save sinners from their sin. The Apostle Paul said, I know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Father, let us cling to that truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.